Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Can we give Professor Faustein a proper introduction? Please, I insist. You, the former please. chairman of the Council of Economic <clears throat> Advisors, the former chief economic advisor to the President Ronald Reagan. Marty Faustein, the Harvard University professor of economics, joins us now. That's better, isn't it? It's better. That's better. Marty, great to see you. Good to be back on radio it, with you. In your words, Marty, it is not a China-US trade war. Why not? What it's really about is not trade. It's about China stealing U.S. technology, stealing by forcing American companies who do business in China to, <coughs> to uh, transfer their technology to Chinese firms, and also the Chinese stealing through the Internet. <coughs> so, Marty, this raises a question. One of the moves forward, the point of progress we've seen this week has been the Chinese said to be offering to buy even more agricultural product. Sounds like, for you at least, Marty, that's not going to get it done. That's not going to be enough to broker a deal. It's the opposite. That is, they're saying, let's not talk about technology theft. Let's talk about the trade deficit between China and the U.S. And we, the Chinese, can solve that problem. We can buy more of this, that, and the other thing. But that doesn't deal with the true underlying technology theft, and it doesn't change the overall U.S. trade deficit. It'll shift it from China to the rest of the world. The president might actually be happy if the bilateral deficit is addressed, even if the IT issues are not. Ambassador Lighthizer may have a very different point of view on this. Marty, do you see the prospect of the president actually accepting this kind of movement from the Chinese? Because ultimately for him, he might need a win and anything that moves the bilateral deficit in by some form of magnitude palatable for the president would be sufficient enough for him? I hope not. I hope not. I hope that he's listening hard to the voices of Lighthouser and others who are saying that's just a, a diversion from the real issue. To get the real issue addressed, though, you need the Chinese to acknowledge the issue is an issue <laughs> at the moment, Professor. That's not happening, is well, it? Well, but the U.S. is making it very clear to them, as we did not in the beginning. In the beginning, we talked about the trade deficit. wasn't clear what the administration right. wanted. We're X number of years on from a February morning where we all woke up in America to the fact that our president of the United States was in Beijing. Uh, were you on that trip with President Nixon by any chance? I was not. But, but we were all on that trip with the excitement and the history making of it. Are the Chinese now any different than they were then about just waiting out the American and Western process? Well, they see themselves as much more important, much bigger. They see that as an economy, their real size is equal to ours, equal to the European Union. And that gives them a lot lot of leverage with the uh, companies of Asia who want to trade with them. So they've got a very different sense of their role in the world. Marty, great to catch up with you, as always. It's fantastic to have you with us in the studio. Marty Faustein, the Harvard University Professor of Economics.
If you are interested in how every big merger craters, this is the conversation of the day. Tara LaChapelle has been brutal about not just craft and all the rest of it, but every single combination, the obligatory press conference, all the grinning, all the smiling, and the memo today from Tara LaChapelle is right to the point. Warren Buffett owes investors more than a memo this year. Tara, what did he get wrong? So with Warren Buffett, his letter is scheduled to come out tomorrow. I think that investors want to hear more from him about his um, strategy around investing in tech stocks. He seems to be jumping in and out of those. And also more about the succession plan and what's going to happen with all yeah, that. Yeah, okay. But, come but on. I think today the big news is Kraft Heinz. Come on. You know, okay, Tara, I just did the, the common size balance sheet analysis. The percentage of goodwill on Pepsi-Cola's balance sheet is 17 18%. The percentage of goodwill, badwill on Kraft's financially engineered balance sheet is ginormous. It's like 38 exactly. or 39%. Mm-hmm. A, it's failed. B, they've got more to write down in the future. How did this happen? You know, I think a lot of people were just kind of drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, Kraft Heinz for a while had the leading operating margins in this industry. So they're extremely profitable. And I think people thought, you know, this strategy, maybe it does work, but it was very short-sighted. Basically, they just got the business. They cut as many costs as they can, really weren't investing much in the brands themselves. And, you know, that strategy only works for so long until you have a slip up like this. And then suddenly they need to do another mega merger to sort of hide that, bring another company in that they can go back to cutting costs. Because with the businesses they have, you can't, Slash cost into perpetuity. That just doesn't yeah. work, and that's what we're seeing here. Okay, can I just say there that was the ultimate CFA pun of the week? What was that? She can't drink the Kool Aid. Kraft owns Kool Aid. <laughs> I that must have very said very smart. She's t- Tara's just actually, I missed that Tara. That was actually fantastic. That's just like CFA level four. Uh, our colleague here, Brad Ollison, <clears throat> wrote this morning. I actually think this is quite interesting. That Berkshire Hathaway's Warren Buffett will go out there this weekend and perhaps talk about the struggle to locate great deals. The real question, Tara, should have been the deals that he had made just aren't turning out that great either. This weekend, and we're going to spend this weekend talking about finding great deals and how hard it is to find great deals and and not spend much time when we should be looking back at the deals that have been made. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of his letter he spends as sort of autopsying some of the business decisions they've made, you know, really getting into the weeds of insurance and their different units. But he doesn't you know, really talk as much about craft, for example, and some of these investments that they've made on the on the stock market side that really, you know, not right. only are puzzling to investors, they don't align with what we know about Buffett and his belief. Okay. It's a very odd fit. Oh, stop. His belief is to get a preferred coupon. That's all it comes down to. <laughs> is his, I mean, that is, has worked. Yeah, but his Buffett 101 is his 8% or whatever it is preferred coupon. Is that a threat with this write-down and with the equity price cratering or does he still get his coupon i mean i don't know the details around that but i would suspect that we're getting to the point where buffett really needs to consider whether he stays in the stock they are the largest shareholder even bigger than 3g right and at this point it's really hard to defend i'm sure that he's still you know they've made a ton on this investment because of that how, this guy that how did they how did they quote unquote make a ton on this investment so the way this works so buffett had helped 3g buy out Heinz, and then they helped bankroll the deal with 
Kraft and Heinz that brought those two companies together. And as part of that, Buffett got preferred shares, which the company eventually bought back from them, but and has left Buffett with this huge uh, stake in the common shares. But at the end of the day, you know, they did make out pretty well because for a while, you know, they were yeah. getting paid this, I think it was a 9% coupon. And on top of it, the stock was doing okay for a while and everyone in the yeah. industry felt this need to mimic them. So it felt like, you know, these guys are the ones to, right. to copy, that they're doing the right thing. It was only a matter of time before, you know, the curtain would fall and we would right. see that this strategy simply is flawed. And, you know, I can't imagine right. how much longer Berkshire would stay. Buffett um, exited the board last year, so he's no longer an insider at the company. He's simply a shareholder. Okay, Tara, thanks so much. Folks, I'll get out on Twitter. Tara LaChapelle, Warren Buffett owes investors more than a memo uh, this year. It's a terrific pre- precursor, Tara, thank preview you. rather, to uh, that meeting in Omaha. She's never careful. Outspoken and fantastic. Schwab Center for Financial Research, Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Hey, Kathy, great to catch up with you. What I keep hearing from a lot of people on the buy side, heard it from PIMCO yesterday, I caught up with Mark Kiesel over there. It's to fade the strength. It's this theme of fading the strength, looking to build cash and go up in quality. Does that resonate with you, Kathy? Uh, yeah. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, we've been we've been actually um, suggesting moving up in credit quality for quite some time. Um, I think this this big move we've had since the first of the year, since about Christmas Eve, uh, in credit uh, in lower quality credit should be faded. I think um, there's just really not a lot of substance behind it. And when you look at the risk reward trade off, you say, well, how much how much reward am I getting at these spreads uh, for the risk I'm taking? And it doesn't look all that attractive. So, Kathy, where are we? High yield, about 400 basis points over? Correct. Yeah, right about Is there. that too tight for you then, Kathy? You just think that's too tight? Um, you know, we're, we're officially neutral here, uh, but I would say that it's a bit tight uh, considering the risk that we get some downgrades yeah. from the triple Bs into the junk area. Um, that could overwhelm it. And, and we really still aren't clear on what the Fed is doing. Uh, right. We know that they're sitting on the sidelines, but we don't really know what the next move yeah. is going to be. Kathy Jones, just so you understand, where are we? We're four and a half hours away from the real yield seen on Bloomberg TV on bonds. With that mentioned, Kathy, is there any real yield out there? I mean, inflation's lower, so do I feel better about my inflation-adjusted yield? Well, there are the real yields are higher than they used to be. Okay, so when we had the zero interest rate policy, it was really tough to find any real yield. You can find a little bit out there, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not fantastic. Uh, it isn't going likely going back to where it used to be prior to the financial crisis. Um, we just don't uh, don't see nominal rates moving up that much relative right. to inflation. Rich Truman, did you get that? Where Miss Jones said the real yield is not fantastic. Can we put that into an ad ad campaign? Pain. Okay, thank That's you. not what John, she meant. She's a regular on the show. Oh, on your show, on yes, your property. She's, she's okay, a regular please. on the show. I insist. Kathy, you enjoy the program, don't you? Oh, I love the program. It's my favorite. Uh, it's my favorite TV show. Oh, there you go. God. How do you like How that? You <laughs> do you like that, Tom Keen? <laughs> do you sleep through Bloomberg surveillance on Bloomberg TV? Lizanne Saunders doesn't treat me like this. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, this idea of going up in quality, just for people not familiar, 
with fixed income. What does that ultimately mean specifically? What does going up in quality mean? Well, I think within, say, the investment-grade corporate bond area, uh, now about half of that universe, and maybe even a little bit more, is the lowest uh, tier, triple B. So we would suggest that you uh, you move up in, into, the say, the A-rated bonds, not abandon triple B entirely, but certainly not uh, concentrate there. And it's easy, particularly if you're in a passive strategy that just follows an index, to get overweighted in the lower tiers of credit quality. So we're suggesting move up, at least divide up right. between the triple Bs and, and some A-rated bonds. And in the junk world, the same story. I mean, if we're even within junk, uh, if you're heavily concentrated in the triple Cs, you're risk of default, uh, getting some bonds at default is very high uh, if we go into a slowdown in the economy. I mean, this you just said there, Kathy, is extremely important because people are not buying individual bonds nowadays. They're buying indexes. They're buying ETFs. They're buying segmented. Are our listeners too segmented in your bond world? Should they be buying more blended ETFs and portfolios? Well, you know, we, we like ETFs and we like passive strategies because they're really, you know, provide you a lot of liquidity and a very cost-effective way to invest. So I wouldn't abandon it entirely, but we, yeah, we do think you need to be somewhat strategic here and even tactical in how you allocate within the passive uh, in the passive world because it's been pretty easy for a very long time as asset prices kind of moved up with the Fed being very easy. And we've had a little bit of that year to date. But when things change, it's going to get more challenging. Kathy Jones, always great to catch up with you. Thank you. you she said the okay? real yield you, five okay? times okay in the interview. I kept count. You're you a know? bit upset. No, that's great. Kathy, thank you. Schwab Center what, for Financial what, seriously, Research, what are you Chief doing? Fixed Income Strategist. What's I want to make clear the markets just shifted. There's no other way to put it. On a Friday morning, we had higher yields. A 30-year bond with a vengeance has come lower yield three basis points to four digits, 3.0159. The abruptness of that is sobering with a 10-year 2.66%. Green on the screen on futures, but also sterling comes in uh, abruptly in Euro 113.37. And as Karen mentioned, there it is, Samsonite, Caterpillar, and Xerox to be a list of companies that we would get to. She is Senior Vice President for Tit for Tat Trade uh, for Vanguard. And Matthias joins us now, supremely qualified on Washington, on our domestic and international relations. And I should point out she's a member of the CFA Institute. So unlike so many in Washington, she actually understands the bid and the ask. And thrilled to have you with today. What's the bid and ask on American trade right now? It's so interesting. You know, trade takes forever and you can achieve so much just by threatening. Like, look at the markets this morning. Is you that had, what we're doing with China and with Europe? That is what is going on right now. There's a lot of chest thumping, uh, silverback gorilla posing, power mm -hmm. posing, uh, to paraphrase Amy Sounds Cuddy. Sounds like the morning meeting at Bloomberg Surveillance, but continue. <laughs> it's true. So what happens after the chest thumping? Well, that's the interesting thing. Trade, real trade agreements take a long time to accomplish. Tariffs, you can slap them on right away. You can do some political damage. So I think this is just a moment where everyone's trying to, to, to 
pile their chips up on the table so when they really start playing the game, when they really start negotiating trade agreements, they have something to play with. Okay, but so this is I would within... I would read through a lot of it as an investor. Okay, fair, but it's a unilateral bilateral discussion, and we're all attuned to bilateral or multilateral. That is right. Solutions are they out there? I do think there are some multilateral solutions that are still possible. We have a president who is very, very bilaterally focused on trade. Obviously, he's trying to you know, carve off and do one-on-one -on -one negotiations with, with the major trading partners. But I do think the European Union will stick together on the trading front. Um, you know, these, this, this headline that we just had this morning about Caterpillar, Xerox, and Samsonite uh, tariffs from Europe um, is sort of a positioning play. But right. I, I think I think let's like bring it back up a little bit. Global trade right now, global trade disputes are a proxy for people's worry about global growth. Okay, but the, you know, the Bentley was down today, so I didn't bring it into the office early and I came in in a fine German automobile. Why can't we have no tariffs on autos and see if the best car wins at whatever price point? Well, we could do that if there was one global president and everybody voted for him. No, but the answer is we're <laughs> afraid to do that, right? America's afraid to do that. Well, every country in the world is Germany's often... afraid to go to no tariffs? I think so. And Japan, for example, protects its agricultural industry pretty significantly. No, but I, I mean in you automobiles. Know? Automobiles yeah. are a unit decision. You know, the, I would suggest it's not like corn, you know, perfect, you know, 19th century commodity. And I, I just right. don't, isn't it good for the Germans to call the president's bluff and say, okay, tariff guy, let's do no tariffs. I think it's really tough because those industries employ a ton of people, both in the U.S. and in Germany, and those are voters, okay. both in the U.S. and in Germany. And like you said, a car is not an ear of corn. A car moves back and forth theoretically. Yeah, it's not a soybean. No, it's not a soybean. It, it, it is part of a huge integrated global supply chain, and the companies okay. don't want to blow that up. To Anne Mathias's expertise, what do you see in the Senate where they are worried about agriculture in terms of China and the U.S. negotiations? Forget about all the, the chest thumping, as you call it, right. that we're going to witness in Washington. What does a given senator from Iowa or Idaho actually think? Well, they would like to have China buy more U.S. agricultural products. And I think the thing that they're most worried about is that there is some huge breakdown in trade talks or in the, in the bilateral agricultural relationship between China and the U.S. where China says, okay, no mas, we're going to buy everything from Brazil. That would be a disaster. So that's why you see the Chinese offering to buy more agricultural products as okay. part of their trade talks. You're, you're a student of Washington, and you're doing this for Vanguard, I understand, but you're doing it within a gilded age. I'm looking at yields today coming in abruptly. Again, the German tenure I find stunning. Now, folks, 0 0.098, it's ground down another thousandth. I, I mean, these are all important discussions, and they're discussions of disinflation. That's right. Does that mean we don't care about Martin Feldstein's fiscal deficit or debt because low yields are going to come to the rescue forever? Well, that's, that's a really good question. We could have a deep academic discussion. but We don't do those on Friday, but continue. <laughs> no, I know, I know. So, you know, in, in active funds as investors, we're trying to figure out where we can make some, some return for our investors um, with, with, our, with our strategies. And, it, and you are right, it is very challenging. But there are a lot of tailwinds. It's not just trade. It's not just this president. It's not just this last couple of years that are driving yields lower. Uh, you have a combination of 
demographics, technology, globalization. Where is inflation? Mm -hmm. this, this should be the perfect environment for inflation, and we can barely crack 2%. As a student of Washington, how do you, how do you define the path forward for our new socialism? Howard Dean spoke to us this morning, and he was piercing about it being a one-off. Do you, do you buy it as a one-off? We've been doing a lot of work at, in, our, in our group at Vanguard on income inequality mm -hmm. and ways to think about it, try to resolve it. I, I think some of these discussions around socialism and changing the overall objectives of government are driven by income inequality. And um, you know that's something we're going to have to tackle. So I don't think socialism, yeah. this discussion around socialism, is yeah. the one way. I think right. it's a symptom of an economic environment that's right. been growing over a number of years. Okay, i got a major problem. Since I've last seen you, I wandered to Helsinki with the leaders of the world, and I enjoyed the Helsinki summer, which is like 25 hours in a day. That's What right. a gorgeous city. It's I was so thunderstruck. Lovely. Have you been there in the winter? Yes, I, I actually was just there in uh, January. What and is it I like when it. it's dark? Oh, stop. What's it like when it's dark all day? It's lovely. It snows and it sort of glows in the snow with a beautiful, huge moon. And there's no one there. It's very peaceful. You would be bored. Is it like Frozen? I mean, is everything it like, is Frozen. It, yeah, it's like the movie Frozen. Yeah, right? they have they actually have ice ratings for the different um, inlets and uh, lake areas, so that so you know you know if how you heavy go out you are them, to go out on like the in ice. the opening scene of Frozen. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know this one, Paul Sweeney, where the icemen come out. And of course, they That's sing what that they song. Do. I, that's what they I, do. I'm banned they sent from you out as a test songs, subject. Right? I was going to say you'd never leave the bar in the winter <laughs> in Finland. I think Dangerous. you have to wait. They have a drink February. I tried. It's uh, what is the drink I tried? Sure it's white. Did. It's a coconut thing or something. I don't know. They it's don't grow coconuts stop. Don't in Finland. Don't listen to me. It's like some. Oh, Paul Sweeney somehow knows the answer to this. It's like some famous Finnish drink with gin and white stuff in it or something. It sounds perfect for the dead of winter. They they it use does. it at Duke when it they lose. Amethyst, thank you so much. You're so welcome. good to see you. And please, where are you based out of now? Are you I'm, in I'm Philadelphia? In, I'm in Malvern at, at yeah. Vanguard um, on Wonderful. our active fixed income team. So right. we're you know we're managing a couple hundred billion okay. in active Amethyst, assets. Thank you. You got to go to are. television. Thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Amethyst with Vanguard uh, today. There are exactly three people that I would like to talk to about this exceptionally historic week in fashion. One is, of course, the great Vanessa Friedman over at the New York Times, my good friend Robert Burke with all he's done in uh, retail over the years, and our guest, Dana Telsey. Dana, you grew up uh, literally X number of years old, toddling around Bergdorf Goodman. When did you discover Chanel at Bergdorf Goodman? Many, many years ago, what is amazing about Chanel is in every category, whether it's handbags, whether it's clothing, whether it's cosmetics, they dominate. And what Karl Lagerfeld did, not just for Chanel, but for the fashion industry, seems like we'll never see anything like that again. Why will we never see a Lagerfeld again? Is it just there's too much money being thrown at the industry? I mean, he did Chloe, and then he did this, he did that, and then a 30-year-plus run at Chanel. Why can't that pixie dust be reinvented again at uh, Gucci, for instance? The speed at which fashion is moving today and the ability for one designer to dominate for that period of time is basically something we haven't seen. And the ability to manage 
two cat to manage two brands is and be able to differentiate them and create something unique and innovative is exceptional. And yet he had his own line also. So what he meant to so many different brands, mm-hmm. to a wide range of consumers, he was innovative and adaptable. And that was what was so impressive. I'm sure you bumped into him over the years. What was the body chemistry of Karl Lagerfeld in a high-end fashion audience? What's the, the personal vision you can bring on Mr. Lagerfeld? I think one of the things when you saw him is that he was so forward-thinking, and you were basically in the company of someone who saw what the next season and the next trend is going to look like. He may be dressing you for today, but he's thinking about tomorrow. Let's talk about the tomorrow of fashion. Boy, has it been interesting and ugly. I see the vacancies, the moving around on Madison Avenue. What does Dana Telsey see forward for autumn and then into that important holiday season, 2019? I see what you're seeing in terms of the movement around. It seems like everything is getting closer to Madison and 60th or 61st rather than in the upper 70s where some of the higher-end brands have been located. But there definitely seems to be a collection going to a certain particular area. When you think about the fall and what's going to change out there from what is now, I think the continuation to be even more differentiated will be key, to give people a reason to be able to buy and to say, what, whatever it may be, I'm associated with, with this brand. And I think that's going to be what we see a little bit. I think we're still beginning to see logos continue to be very important. The dominance of Gucci continues to be very strong. And also the streetwear culture and what activewear is doing, it's basically resonating throughout almost every brand today. And I think it's going to be super interesting to see the mark new designers make on brands, whether it's at Celine or whether it's at Burberry. We have some new, new collections that everyone's going to be watching carefully. So, Dana, we've got the Chinese, uh, all-important Chinese uh, luxury market or the Chinese market in general slowing down. We've got Western Europe, a lot of uncertainty there with Brexit. How's that impacting the luxury end of the retail market? What was so interesting is that on the most recent results coming out of LVMH, their fashion and leather goods business showed an increase of around 17%. That was higher than expected, and frankly, that strength that they had, I think that was stronger than anyone expected. Obviously, it's full-price sales, and the newness that you have at the Louis Vuitton brand was amazing. So beyond the Asia-Pacific growth that you had, because you did have that, I mean, you're continuing to see strength there, and it accelerated from 14% through the first nine months. That was that was terrific. I, I mean, this includes the Louis Vuitton Archlight sneaker exclusively online, one thousand ninety dollars for a set of sneakers. Dana, do you own a pair of those sneakers? Or like Jeff Curry's got the Balenciaga ones. Do you own a pair of those fancy overpriced sneakers? Who wouldn't want to own a pair of those fancy <laughs> overpriced sneakers? Because you know what? It's the look of today, and that matters. So, Dana, as more and more retail sales go online, which of the retailers that you follow are doing the best job of managing that? I mean, you're certainly seeing companies like Nordstrom doing a terrific job online, knowing their customer with their rewards program and marrying it with Nordstrom Local and how they integrate the rack. I think they're doing a terrific Mm -hmm. job at online, and we're going to continue to see more.
If you're just joining us, Dana Telsey with us, Telsey Advisory Group, as we discuss Carl Lagerfeld and look at luxury. Maybe, Paul, let's go a little down market right now. What's your perspective there? Well, it's interesting. One of the things, Dana, I want to get your perspective on is we had those surprisingly bad retail sales numbers came out in December down 1.2%, but then Walmart came out with uh, pretty good numbers last week. What is your sense of the mass market? I mean, overall, I think the mass market, given that they're, lo- they're where they're located in open-air centers, they seem to be gaining traffic. What was so impressive about Walmart's U.S. number, it not only was it a sequential acceleration on a two-year basis, but it was driven by positive traffic, up just under a percent, a mid-single-digit grocery comp, and e-commerce growth of 43%. Plus the fact that when you look at the Sam's Club business, the 3.3% comp fuel traffic was up 6.4%. So what it tells you is traffic is going to these discounters, it's going to the off-pricers, they, in a pun, they value value, and it's working. So people want to see where can they get more for their dollar. So Dana, we're getting uh, the majority of the retailers starting reporting, I believe, next week. What should investors really be looking for here? Want to watch the inventory levels, particularly at the department stores. We had a rough holiday season for the department stores. Definitely was a bit lackluster. Some of them came in with inventory levels that were higher going into the fourth quarter with the expectation of a stronger holiday season. And overall, after third quarter inventory was up 1.9%, we're looking for fourth quarter inventory. Hopefully it shows a downward trend, which is what we need. In a day, Dana, where we see craft craft food slaughtered, what's a strategic vision forward for big retail, Macy's, Kohl's, and the rest of them? Is it just cost-cutting? Is that the only solution? Or do you have a better idea? got to be services. It's got to be reconfiguring the store print footprint. Into what? Into what? What? 100% makeup? No, no, no. Services. What you're seeing with what some of these stores are doing, look what Macy's has done with the Apple in-store shop. Look what Bloomingdale's has done lately with their new Is the Tiffany model worked? All the fancy new Tiffany kid stuff they've got? It is. One of the most popular items at Tiffany's lately is everything for pets. It's been very popular. Oh, no. Let's not go there, Tom. See, Dana saw me in Central Park. Yep. Dana, you know that Vet Bill got a Tiffany light blue, you know, leash. I told you the pet the pet purchases at Tiffany. Yeah. They're very popular. Yeah, they told me I can't go to the website to see what we paid for that thing as well. Dana, what's the fashion item for summer? All of our listeners coast to coast and worldwide want to know what Dana Telsey says every woman needs for the summer. What is it? I think overall what people are gonna need for this the summer. I think it's going to be all about um, some of the, the, the maxi skirts that are out there and the flowing dresses. I think that's going to be the, one of the popular trends. Riley from St. Louis modeling that yesterday. Dana Telsey, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it, particularly that perspective on Dana Telsey's Bergdorf Goodman of years ago and Mr. Lagerfeld as well. Dana's a jewel. I she, mean, she did sell side at Bear Stearns. Yep. And then boom. She What's, and what, what I admire most about her is not that she's you know one of the absolute top retail analysts, but she has built a phenomenal business. She left uh, the safety, if you would, of the sell side, founded her own firm, and I would you can count on one hand those analysts that have left yeah. Wall Street and established large, thriving and, research departments, and she was absolutely at the forefront. And of to that. me, with Dana, it's so visceral with her because of her childhood. Her, her grandparents were involved with. I believe with Bergdorf Goodman. I can't remember the story right now, but it's wonderful when you've got sell side where it's visceral, like Mario Gabelli on autos and, and that kind of stuff. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.